Good morning. It is good to be back with you. I'm sorry I missed the last two weeks, but Kevin and Lucas did a great job. I had breakfast with a friend two Thursdays ago, and that afternoon he tested positive. And I could just see the headlines, Pastor Infects Church. It just seemed like Julie and I ought to take a break. So the guys preached, did a great job. As uh, First of all, I want to thank Kevin for the focus on uh, prayer for the transition. The elders are specifically asking that all the ministries in the church focus on prayer as we go through this time. Um, you know, that Grace has always been a sending church. It's always been a teaching church. And, and in, in my leadership, in my time, I've tried to make prayer more focal point. We do the guided prayer where you participate in prayer in the surface. Our staff meets for prayer every week together. Um, but if I were to say one regret, I wish, of course, you can never do enough, but I, I wish we had done more about prayer. I really do. I, I wish that in my leadership, prayer had been even more central than it has been. Um, in many ways, it is the work of the ministry, and we get so busy oftentimes. And with this transition, with everybody nervous and questioning and fearful, when you get uptight about the transition, would you just stop and pray? Instead of complaining or worrying, just stop and pray. We need together to pray for this time, that the Lord's future for grace is exactly what he would want. That would mean a lot to us. Uh, the series that we started, that I was going to start, but I was um, hunkered down, is, is more like Jesus. You remember years ago, we had the WWJD bracelets, the what would Jesus do? I personally wasn't a big fan of those. It, um, bumper sticker theology just always makes me a little crazy, but, but, but the, the sentiment of it is wonderful. And, and what we're trying to do in this series is look at the gospel of Luke through the lens about what is Luke teaching us about what it means to, to be a disciple. When you read all four gospels, the ultimate impact of all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is obviously the story of Jesus. And each one has a different emphasis in the way they teach the story. Matthew, emphasis of him has king, fulfillment of the messianic roles and the nation of Israel and the offer to the kingdom. Very significant. Mark, very action-oriented and, and describing Jesus for the, especially for the Gentile to understand. Luke uh, is, is the most his, historically oriented. He says, I'm a historian, and, and he, he goes deep into a lot of practice, pragmatic issues of discipleship. Then, of course, John, when you ask what does John teach us about Jesus, it's very clear. John teaches us that Jesus loved, right? It's just overwhelming in the gospel of John and the epistles of John that, that John even calls himself, we believe, the disciple whom Jesus loved because he of all 12 was the most closely uh, fellowship with Jesus. The intimacy of their relationship was such that love founded his understanding and that's what you read in John. But, but what we did is we sat and looked at Luke and said, obviously these passages are teaching us things about Jesus. And we'll look at those as we go through. But what does Luke want us to see about what it means a disciple? Because I believe that is very much intended by him according to the direction of the Holy Spirit as he tells these stories that they teach us things about discipleship. So the first story uh, Kevin looked at when Jesus was 12 and left behind at the temple and mom and dad come back and find him in discussions with the religious leaders and they're blown away by his depth of knowledge. And you remember what he said? Mom, don't you know I got to be about my father's stuff? 
Now, if you memorized it in King James, it was my father's business. If you read it in a modern translation, my father's house. The reason they changed is that word is left out. It's up for the interpreter. But what it clearly means is I'm about my father. I'm about my father. Jesus had a remarkable clarity in his focus of what he was here to do. And, and he came as the son of God, fully man, fully God, to glorify the father and provide for redemption for mankind, right? I mean, and, and that focal point of ministry. And you see that in his temptation, the story that Lucas looked at last week, because when, when, when Satan kept trying to divert Jesus' attention away from his, his purpose, he kept coming back to what I'm here to be. I'm here to honor the Father. So you see that that focal point is one of the things that we as disciples should have. One of the phrases that's not in script. My mother and I always had a debate. She always said, you know, as the Bible says, this too shall pass. I finally had to say, Mom, I hate to tell you that's Shakespeare. It's just not in the Bible. She said, well, it should be in the Bible because it's a biblical truth that these things are temporary. Uh, another phrase that people think of almost as in the Bible is the Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the reason we quote that one so much is it's such an incredible summary of what you and I are here to do. We're to bring glory to God and, and to enjoy him by our obedience, by our faith. Obviously, there's a lot more to do, but that's the focal point of what we're called to do and be as, as his children. And then when we keep that focal point and we depend on the Spirit as the Lord did and we're, we're instructed in the Word so that we can counter temptation by the power of the Word as Lucas taught last week, then we are effective in resisting the temptations of Satan, right? Today I want to look again in Luke chapter 4 at another truth about Christ and then how it affects our discipleship. So if you'll turn to Luke chapter 4 verse 14, we're going to look at another story that quite frankly I don't think gets enough attention. I don't think it gets enough attention. Beginning with verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee. That's the northern part of the nation of Israel surrounding the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's kind of the country part of the town. Jerusalem's metropolitan. Think East Coast. Galilee is, is more country. Think Midwest. In the power of the Spirit. Notice again that, that Luke wants to emphasize that even though Jesus is the Son of God, he does all he does in the power and fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Major theme that we'll see come up again. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in the synagogues and everyone praised him. Now, we believe that Jesus' ministry had already done significant things in the southern part of the kingdom around Jerusalem, but Luke picks up the story in the Galilean phase. And so they have already heard about all the things that Jesus has said and done. And word spreads fast. In the nation of Israel, there was an expectation of a Messiah who would come. So they were, if you will, sitting on the edge of their theological seats, waiting for the one who would come. And they hear this story about this one named Yeshua and about the magnitude of his teaching. Scripture says he taught as one with authority and about the miracles that he accomplished. And everybody's pumped and excited about him. That's what he's saying. Because they're thrilled that he's going to do what they want the Messiah to do. 
We'll come back to that. Verse 16. And he went to Nazareth. Okay, now you and I read Nazareth and we think, oh, that's a nice little town. John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael, one of the apostles, and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Do you remember how Nathanael responded? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Now, I'm going to get booze, but get, let, let me give you an analogy. All right? Just get over yourself. If you're from Austin, you see where it's going, don't you? Right? He's from College Station. Nothing good comes out of College Station. And one guy at first service said, yeah, there is. Highway 6 comes right out. Um, uh, it's not fair. It's, it's prejudice. It's not right. Okay? But you get the point. It, it was viewed as a backwater town. And when we go to Israel, our, our bus driver, Munir, is a Palestinian Christian who lives in Nazareth. And it's just so much fun to have that connection with this town. So Jesus of Nazareth, he goes back to Nazareth. Why is it significant? Luke tells us it's where he grew up. Don't forget that. It's where he grew up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as was his custom. Don't, don't skip that. The Son of God needed public worship. Now, obviously, the pandemic has, has limited our ability. I'm not on that. But notice the Son of God made it a habit for public worship. This is the first mention of the synagogue. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about the roots of the synagogue. We believe synagogue worship began during the captivity in Babylon. The temple had been destroyed. Obviously, prior to that, the temple was the focal point of worship. It was where the sacrificial system occurred. It was where the priests were located and, and taught the word in the court. And when it, it was destroyed, faithful Jews said, we've got to worship. So they created this thing called the synagogue, coming together. And um, it's fascinating. When you, when you read later descriptions of what synagogue worship was like, Christian worship is patterned after it to this day. Because, because what happened? Who made the first church members? Jews. So they would start with the recitation of the great Shema, which is the verse that's central to Jewish worship, Hebrew worship. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is, that is that focal point, remember, of how they started the worship. And then they might sing some psalms together. They would read from the law they would read from the prophets, and as long as there were at least 10 men around, it was a legitimate service according to their traditions, and one of the men would sit down and expound the scripture, followed by a benediction. It's, it's crazy how similar our pattern of worship even to this day still is. Prayer, scripture, singing, and taught, teaching of the word. So Jesus goes to the synagogue, and when time comes to teach, he takes the scroll, and remember this for the printing press, one of the things that made a synagogue important is it would have scrolls, which were hand 
copied, so they're incredibly valuable, and Jesus reads from it. And Luke quotes much of what he reads. Notice verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Again, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue was, were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The section that Jesus reads from is Isaiah 61, chapter, verses 1 and 2. He may also take one of the phrase, the, release the oppressed from Isaiah 58, 6. Some believe he did, others they didn't. Isaiah 61 is a messianic passage. It is a passage that predicts what the servant will do to bring, bring redemption to the nation of Israel. One of the things, um, when Tom Pierce uh, attended Grace for many years and was a bit of a Hebrew scholar, and when he died, his wife Karen gave me, uh, he had a set of commentaries written by a modern Jewish rabbi on the Old Testament. And so one of the things I'll go is look and see what they say about Old Testament passages when they've rejected Jesus as Messiah. What is fascinating on this passage, he said, clearly the, prof, uh, the um, prophet is speaking of himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and I've gone brought to proclaim the message. But then he contradicts himself because he says, but the problem is prophets weren't anointed. Only priests and kings were anointed. It's as if he set us up. Because who is this prophesying? The king, son of David, after the order, priestly order of Melchizedek. The perfect priest and king. And then he goes on to describe what this messianic personage will do. Um, notice the phrases. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and release the oppressed. Um, this is a passage that, that has been used um, predominantly in the development of what's called liberation theology. Um, there, there are three different ways you can respond to these passages. Uh, one is the method of the liberation theologian. That was predominant, especially in South and Central America. And, and it took these passages and says the whole point of Jesus' coming is to, to free the oppressed. And, to, and um, the social gospel of the 20th century is similar. It, it takes the whole purpose of the church to bring these social changes. And um, we, we would reject that that's the whole purpose of why Jesus came. He came uh, ultimately to die on the cross for the sins of the world. There, there's another... Uh, I think extreme reaction that I would call Neoplatonic. Now I wasn't a, uh, Lucas Rogers is the philosophy guy, but work with me here. It's Neoplatonic in the sense that it, it's, it, it makes a too strong a distinction between that which is spiritual and that which is physical. Only the spiritual matters. So that Jesus comes to bring salvation. Only that spiritual stuff and, and that physical stuff doesn't matter. And, and there have been eras in Christianity when we neglect the physical implications of the gospel by focusing only on the spiritual. 
in my opinion, and I think the majority of positions, is that the, the reality is there's a different view. And that, and that is, as described in this passage, that Jesus came, obviously, ultimately, to deal with the problem of sin in the world. Because all the other bad stuff comes out of our sin, right? And Jesus, as taught in the, in the Old Testament sacrificial systems, came to die for the sins of the world, to be a sacrifice for the sins of the world so that those that look upon him can have forgiveness of sins and he was resurrected on the third day to demonstrate his victory over death. But that doesn't exclude the reality that if you love Jesus and love others, the gospel lives out, right, in caring for people. Remember when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, and the, and the religious leaders came up to him and said, yeah, but who's my neighbor? You don't mean that guy. What did Jesus respond? The story of the Good Samaritan. And what was the point of the Good Samaritan? Well, first of all, the best guy in the Good Samaritan was the best, worst guy in the neighborhood. He was a Samaritan. Nobody likes Samaritans. And Jesus said, so who's the neighbor here? It's the one who sees the need and responds to it, to the brokenness. Because we're commanded to love our neighbor, right? We, we do things that are responsive to those needs as an expression of our love. James anticipates the problem with this because he points out in chapter 2, verse 16, if one of you says to someone in need, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, you've done nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In other words, in Scripture, the, the two aren't divided. The, the primary issue is our sin problem, which Jesus accomplished forgiveness on the cross. But we live out that love by responding to people in need, right? Thank God that others do for us. That, that, that's, that's part of the gospel, not, not to bring salvation, but to demonstrate the love of Christ in our lives. And, and Jesus effectively says that. I, I fulfilled that. The phrase I want you to catch, though, that's particularly significant is the last one, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Most scholars believe that that is pointing to I know one of your favorite passages in Scripture because you all tell me all the time how much you love the book of Leviticus. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25 and the first section focuses on two things. The Sabbath year. If you remember in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was to work the crops for six years. But in the seventh year, they were to allow the land to lie fallow and depend on God's provision as a, for a whole year. And this is crazy. God knew that that would be good for the land. Who knew? Maybe he made it or something. But he also knew it would be an important demonstration of the nation of Israel's confidence in God that he would provide and a testimony to the nations around them that God provided when they did it. Now, the sad reality is the nation of Israel, as far as we know, never practiced a single sabbatical year. Because when the Lord took them into captivity, he said, you're going to be there 70 years because the land's going to get those 70 sabbatical Sabbath years that you neglected. In other words, God's judgment and the captivity had a direct correlation to their disobedience and not honoring the Sabbath year and showing their faith and dependence on God. 
But Leviticus chapter 25 goes beyond that and talks about the year of Jubilee. And according to Leviticus chapter 25, they were to have seven Sabbath years together. Seven times seven is 49. And then after the seventh Sabbath year, they were to take an additional Sabbath year called the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee not only was another Sabbath year, but it was economically life-changing in the nation of Israel. Because on the year of Jubilee, first of all, let me back up, when, when, they, when they took the land in the captivity under Joshua, the land was divided among families. Families were all given portions of the land according to their tribes, except for the Levites because they had the temple worship. They had a separate role. In Leviticus chapter 25, it says, if someone gets in financial trouble and have to sell their land in the course of those 50 years, in the year of Jubilee, if they weren't able to buy it back, they're require, it's required to be returned to them. So that it was a means that would ensure that families, future generations, wouldn't carry the burden all of history for the bad decisions of previous generations. Now, I don't know of anyone that recommends that we do that today. But it is interesting. I had a friend in seminary who grew up in Louisiana, and he was an attorney. And, and he came to seminary and, and, and did seminary, and then he went back into law practice, and he had to study law over because we have American laws. Louisiana has French laws. He literally had to redo it. And, and, and we were talking about it, and he said, I'm going into bankruptcy law. And I said, bankruptcy law? Do you have a problem with a, as a Christian with that? Because I'd always heard condemnation of people that, you know, they getting away from paying their debts. We Christians should pay our debts. And it was really fascinating. He said, Andy, have you, have you ever studied the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament? He said, isn't it interesting that in the Old Testament, God had provision through the year of Jubilee to allow people to have a do-over? In, in fact, the more I studied the Old Testament, the more I realized just how much the Old Testament law had provisions that we often forget. And ironically, I think much of our Western law is deeply rooted in. I think our, Euro, our, our idea of bankruptcy may well have grown out of the Western, the biblical tradition of the year of Jubilee where those debts were forgiven. Um, most scholars believe when Jesus was reading that, the year of the Lord's favor, they would immediately thought of the year of Jubilee. And the Jews of that day believed that the year of Jubilee represented that future day when God, through the Messiah, would bring the shalom and the glory to Israel that he had always promised. So Jesus reads it and there, yay, except in Hebrew, or Aramaic. And, and, and everybody's thrilled. Because they identify with the oppressions that they've experienced. They identify with the heartache of their families. They identify with all of this and say, not only is he going to bring these things, but he's going to raise all of us up to the, the prophesied ideal that God planned for us. And what an incredible blessing. They were thrilled. Because, because they understood that Jesus was saying, I am the Messiah and I'm going to bring that in. Now, a couple of things. One interesting little footnote. When Jesus quotes the phrases from Isaiah 61, he leaves out the phrase about judgment. Because in his first advent, he doesn't bring judgment. In his second coming, 
he will bring judgment. And he is announcing what he's come to do now. Fascinating how much the details matter. So Jesus is in effect telling his hometown crowd, I'm here to fulfill the Old Testament word of the Lord. By the way, we believe that in the last days, the millennial kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, that that idea of the fullness of the Lord will be fulfilled in the last days. That all of that in the Old Testament prefigures God's ultimate work in the eschatology in the future days. Something to chew on. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's the prophecy of prophetic fulfillment. Verse 22 through 27, we see prophetic judgment. I love the first phrase. Well, they all spoke well of him. It's like, it's like if, if a political leader came here and said, everybody here, when you leave, you get a million dollars. Everyone's going to speak well of him, right? And Jesus has effectively said, I've come to fulfill the messianic promises. So they're all happy with him. And they were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. But I believe the next phrase is the hint of what comes. But isn't this Joseph's son? Wait a minute. Isn't this? Remember, this is his hometown. And Joseph... They knew as the carpenter or stonemason, depending on what you, how you understand it, the, the, the guy that had a shop down the street that they had bought furniture or other things from. And, and that meant he wasn't a priest. He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He wasn't, well, he just wasn't anything special. He was just down the street. And it may even have a greater barb to it, right? Isn't this... <laughs> Joseph's son, the one whose birth was kind of under sketchy circumstances. And this introduces one of the things that I think Luke wants us to see. The most important thing we get from this passage is that Jesus has announced that he's fulfilling the Old Testament truth about what the Messiah would ultimately bring in the fulfillment of God. But the second thing he wants us to see as disciple is sometimes the greatest hurt we have at Christian, for, as Christians is at the hands of the people that we know and love best. Our homies. If I can say it that way. I don't think I've ever said homie before in my life. But <laughs> I just did. Jesus said to them, Surely you'll quote the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Jesus supernaturally understands their thoughts and says, now I know where you're headed with this. You're, you're applauding me. You're all excited because you know what you want me to do? Free food, healings, power. But I tell you the truth. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I don't know if it's been in your experience, but for many people, when they first come to Christ, some of the deepest hurts they have is from people that they love most who, who struggle with accepting this change. 
the, the reality is that, that it's just something in human nature. Now, w- one thought that I've had about that, because I, I, I think I'm a preacher. You know, when I go back to Tyler, which is East Texas for Tyler, when I go back home, I know there are guys going to be saying, you're a preacher? I, I were, wait a minute, aren't you the one that, right? And, and so for all of us, when, when we think of people that we've known our lives not being accepting, the first thought we have is, well, there's good reason for that because, you know, I was a knucklehead. I did some things. I, one of the things I want you to notice, Jesus got that pushback even though he was perfect. So that part of what this passage shows is that just because those people that I know and love may not be accepting of my faith, that's not necessarily just because of my failing. It's something going on in them. There's, there's something there that they're struggling with. Maybe they're fearful that we'll be condemning and judgmental because they've known others who came to faith and were uh, used that as a, a, a ball-peen hammer on them spiritually. Maybe it's defensiveness because they think we're going to somehow judge them and criticize them and, and uh, speak ill of them. Maybe it's jealousy because they see a peace. There can be all kinds of reasons, and it's not my job to judge them. That's not my point. But my point is, I believe Luke includes this story to show us that sometimes the biggest heartache that we will have as disciples comes from people that we most readily expect to celebrate with us. And because we care so much about them, in all honesty, the wounds from them just hurt more than the wounds from others. Um, you, you know that, that we humans are a mess. That's our theology. Uh, we, we know that our gospel tells us that we of all people should treat others with humility because our gospel acknowledges our brokenness and need of a Savior. But the fact also exists that, that sometimes in our frailty, we can treat unbelievers in a way that is inconsistent the way Jesus did. And regardless, one of the things that many of you and many of us have had to overcome is that when we went home to friends or family, the people on our phone plan, they were the hardest on us. And they were on Jesus too. They were on Jesus too. And it wasn't his fault. Walking with Jesus will bring opposition. But it's particularly painful when it's the people we love and know the best. But Jesus goes on to pronounce judgment. Um, Verse 24, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And now he throws a couple of zingers at him. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. That's from 1 Kings chapter 16 and and chapter 17. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was clean. 
only Naaman, the Syrian. That's from 2 Kings chapter 5. Why does Jesus tell those stories? Jesus is saying that when the, when the, when the Israelites rejected the king, the king moves on to others. On one level, it, it shows how that's been true in the Old Testament. But at another level, it's the prophecy of the New Testament church. Because as Matthew says, the kingdom is offered, it's rejected, and so how does Matthew end? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, he, he is telling them that God has a pattern that when his people, quote-unquote, reject him, he goes to those who will receive him. And in saying that, He's offending his hometown friends. Don't you realize that historically, even in the Old Testament, when the prophets were rejected by the people of Israel, God took his blessings to people from other lands. Um, nothing can stop the power of the Spirit. God will do his work. And, and whether we experience the blessings of that is up to us, humanly speaking. But, but the power of God cannot be stopped. Verses 28 through 32, we have prophetic consequences. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up and drove him out of town and took him to the brow on a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And he went to Capernaum in a town in Galilee and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. And they were amazed at his teaching because he had a message of authority. Who tried to kill him? His neighbors. Isn't that shocking? You know, I've, I've, in my teaching, I've always emphasized that the greatest... Uh, uh, enemies that Jesus had were the religious leaders but the first group as an, once he started his ministry to try to destroy him were the people he'd grown up with his friends and family if you will and can I say to you if, if in your walk with the Lord some, some of the great hurt has come at the hands of people who struggled with your faith. I, I, we all, none of us is blameless. Certainly all of us can look back to things we did before we were Christians and say, well, I get that. But, but the story, this story in Jesus shows that, that it's not just about us. It's also about where they are. And, and God will still work. He will accomplish his will. And, and if, if they don't respond to the gospel, he will take his gospel to where people will. And the question for me is, am I doing what I'm called to do? Um, we can't comprehend the intensity of emotions in first century Israel when Jesus steps up and effectively says, I'm the Messiah. We have no orientation to realize just, just how big a deal that was to them because it was woven through every aspect of their society. 
but most of us know what it is to be rejected by people we love. And Jesus would say, take heart, because I've overcome the world. You're not alone. You have the Spirit, and He will do His work. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that we sometimes lack courage in proclaiming Your Word, and defending our faith, and living out in obedience. And sometimes we allow hurt at the hands of those we love about our faith to paralyze and to cause us to question. We thank you, Father, that while even Jesus encountered that, he remained faithful. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would teach us to do the same. In Christ's name, looking forward to his kingdom, we pray. Amen.